perhaps that very layer of secrecy does give rise, number one, to a public fascination with it, but also a sense of mystery and conspiracy. It can be open for all sorts of conspiracy theories, and you can't disprove things one way or another. Hello and welcome to this week's Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Now today's episode features the extraordinary story of one man's efforts against the Gestapo and the Nazis and his incredible achievement in saving thousands of Jews from the Holocaust. Helen Fry has written the story of Thomas Kendrick, the spy master of Central Europe between the World Wars and also responsible for issuing passports in Vienna to Jews who, had, who then made their way to Britain and safety. He was also station chief of MI6 in Austria, and as we'll hear, came across two of the great British double agents of the last century, Kim Philby and George Blake. Not only that, but he was also involved in rather a murky episode when Rudolf Hess, then Hitler's deputy, flew to Scotland, apparently on his own, in an attempt to make peace overtures with the British government. All this makes for a fascinating chat. Elsewhere on our website, you'll find a strange story from Giles Milton on the disappearance of Agatha Christie and five questions on war from the great historian Margaret Macmillan. I've put the links to these two articles on the show notes for you to find them and also a link to Helen's new book. If you can please leave me a review or subscribe, I'd be hugely grateful. Coming up in the next few weeks, I have Robert Harris discussing his new novel, Act of Oblivion, a thrilling story about the chase for the killers of King Charles I. And I've also got Ben McIntyre discussing his latest book, Colditz. So I'll hand you over to me and Helen, talking about the spymaster, Thomas Kendrick. Hello and welcome to Helen Fry to the Aspects of History podcast. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So Helen, um, it, it is great to talk to you about Thomas Kendrick, the subject of your latest book. Yeah. Spymaster, the man who saved MI6. And um, I've, I've, I was reading this in the last few weeks and it's, he's an extraordinary man. So I can see why you wanted to write about him. Um, but he's he's a he's a man who was around in MI6 in the secret intelligence service in the early days of the the institution, really. So I, I wanted to just start by asking you in those early days of sort of the First World War and just after MI6, as we know it now, um, it was probably a little bit different. So I just wanted to uh, you to help explain exactly what MI6 was, what, what it was properly called in those days as well. Yes, yeah, so it starts out really as part of the Secret Service Bureau, and then it kind of splits into what today we know of MI5 and MI6. But of course, it wasn't called MI6 in those early days. At one point, it was a branch of military intelligence known as MI1C. I mean, it's complicated because it just keeps changing its name. And then it becomes the Secret Intelligence Service, which is still known by today on its official website and is called more popularly MI6. 
But of course, I wasn't lucky enough to access their archives during the writing of this book. So it's really coming at it from a historical angle with no help from MI6. But what I did learn about those early days of the Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, looking at it through the life of Thomas Joseph Kendrick, who was a founding member, he's there with a whole raft of interesting military characters who have a background in military intelligence who may or may not have been to public schools. So we think later of it being, a, it is almost still a, a old boys network and who you know and who you can trust, not only men, but of course women too. So it is a close network, but those early founders actually have an early career in military intelligence. So they're not quite like we would expect. And so uh, just uh, uh, there's, oh God, there's a lot interesting there, like the old boy network. And you, you mentioned that, that it may well still be in existence today. But um, back in the back when it was set up, the Secret Intelligence Service or uh, and it's got all these different sort of other names as well. Was it a, a, a kind of formal organization early on? And and so therefore Kendrick was officially part of it. Or was it a case of of um, the old boy network working and then all these chaps given a job to do and they kind of got on and, and just did it? Well, from my own studies, it looks like it's quite formalised and he's officially signed up to SIS, as we call it, Secret Intelligence Service, SIS, in 1923. So after the First World War, but he's there in its foundations from 1909 in British intelligence. Those intelligence networks for him go back to the end of the Boer War in South Africa. And a number of characters I unexpectedly picked up that cross his path in South Africa from 1901 until 1914 actually were doing intelligence duties out there spying in actually on the Germans and the German potential rearmament because Germany was seen as a threat at that point which turned out to be true but those characters he's working with in British intelligence in South Africa go on to become founding members of the secret intelligence service as it becomes and one of them who's a very shadowy character we we know very little about is Claude Dancy and he goes on to become the deputy head of MI6 in the Second World War. And those same, uh, and Colonel Scotland, who in the Second World War goes on to found a very controversial interrogation centre in Kensington, he's out there in South Africa at that time, as is Kendrick's brother-in-law, Rex Pearson, probably not a person anyone will have necessarily heard of, but again, he works for nearly 40 years for SIS and he's the expert pigeon man sending pigeons behind the lines and that kind of thing so it's if you look at the kind of characters who are mixing in a particular world at a particular time you suddenly find these unexpected connections and a lot of them go on to work together in the first world war in military intelligence like for example Stuart Menges who goes on to become the third head of MI6 they're all working together at various stages before it becomes really formalised. So it's a bit of a, a small world in those early days then? Yeah, very close networks, trusted networks. 
Amongst them, you have, for example, Frank Foley, who would go on to be the British passport officer in Berlin. Again, he has a 30 to 40 year history with SIS and then as it becomes MI6. And he's again at the heart of all these operations. Sigmund Payne Best and Stevens, who get taken at Venlo in November 39 in a German intelligence sting, probably one of the few intelligence operations by the Germans that were successful. But, you know, you, you suddenly realise that, OK, the Venlo incident, for example, Stevens and Best were with Kendrick in the First World War in military intelligence. So joining these dots becomes really, I suppose, quite significant and interesting. And it's about a trusted network at the end of the day, because as we know later in its history, or not so much later, from the 1930s onwards, it would be beset by terrible betrayal and, and by, with traitors and double agents. So it's a very dangerous game. You have to be able to trust those around you that you're working with. I mean, that's my analysis. What do I know? I have no first-hand experience of this. No, but it really comes off the page, actually, particularly, and we'll talk a little bit about that betrayal, which is just so fascinating. Um, but Kendrick himself, and um, he he is appointed, I guess, like Foley, he's sort of, um, he, he seems to be, well, he's the spy master, Kendrick, isn't he? But, um yes. But 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 he's also a passport control officer in but in Vienna, yeah. which um, just Foley is is the similar title in Berlin. Um, and the, the this role as passport control officer is, I guess, nowadays, are they kind of cultural attaches? The uh, if you're in secret intelligence in an embassy, you tend to be called or at least if you're Russian in the Cold War, you'd be called a cultural attache. But it, oh, I guess in the 20s and 30s, you were a passport control officer. Yes. And on the surface, that's what you were. And that's what everyone thought you were doing. Even Kendrick's own wife thought he was filling in passports or whatever you do, stamping passports and visas. And he was doing that, wasn't he? Only, well, only a bit, not, not, um, that was not his main role. So his main role was from the back office with a couple of his secretaries, his trusted SIS secretaries, was to run substantial spy networks across, or at that point, Eastern Europe. So he's really covered Czechoslovakia, Hungary, tips into Romania, a little bit into Poland. Uh, in the 1920s, he's tracking the Russian threat, a very real threat, and he's doing that from Vienna. There's the, the Soviets had a huge organisation of spies embedded, particularly in communist organisations in Vienna. And what I discovered through, I mean, just a, two decades of looking at the files, Kendrick manages to map the whole Russian spy network working out of Vienna. That's just extraordinary when you discover that. So this is what they're doing. They're kind of monitoring the threat. And of course, in the 1930s, that becomes the dual threat of the Russians and the rise of Nazi Germany. So his real job is actually running the networks. It's not to do the day-to-day -day passport work, although he would pick up some of the most important ones. And... So when he goes on to do his rescue efforts in March 1938, the Jewish community, it's not something he's supposed to be doing. And he makes a conscious effort to actually embark on this rescue mission. And I would just say also, 
the official MI6 history says that the most important posting for any SIS spymaster at this time, the 20s and 30s, is Vienna. And so Kendrick's at the heart of it. He's almost missing from the histories of MI6 that have been written so far. Well, and yes, until now. Well, I guess the official, yours is an unofficial history, isn't it? They, yes, uh, it's unofficial. And... The official history of MI6 has about a paragraph or two across different sections about him, but it's so small. You don't really get a sense of how significant he is in their history. And at this time, you talked earlier about the kind of formalised, was it a formalised organisation? There was no proper training. So Kendrick, when he arrives in Vienna in 1925, has to learn on the job. He has to figure out for himself, how is he going to recruit? How is he going to build this network? And he's perfect because he's he's the socialite charmer. He loves being in people's company and he naturally builds connections and friendships as well as formalised agents. So it was as much the success was as much his personality and, and the ability to just, well, move with ease in all kinds of circles, cultural, intellectual, within Catholic conservative circles in, in Austria and also amongst counts, countesses. He's completely at ease with diplomats. He was absolutely perfect and he loved opera. He loved the cocktail parties. He was just a very cultured man who never, ever gave away his own views on anything. You know, you think about the grandchildren said to me, he never told us what he thought politically or religiously. He wasn't a particularly religious man, although he had a Catholic upbringing. But what did he think of those traitors of the Cold War? And they said to me, we have no idea. He probably was absolutely horrified, but he never gave his opinion either way on anything. I mean, he hid that whole that whole lifetime, including his own views from from everyone. It's it's extraordinary that level of discretion, which is almost unheard of that nowadays. It 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 is amazing. Mm. So so that period in um uh, when he's working in Vienna and as you say and the 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 picture painted of Vienna it's well, I kept on thinking of those black and white films set in Vienna, most particularly The Third Man, which we'll come to mm. because there's a connection, isn't there? Um, but but um, he maps this network in Vienna of, of the, the I guess these are all um, uh, communist spies working for the Comintern, I suppose, yes. the, the International Communist Revolution. Are you probably what, what exactly was the Comintern? Well, it's that's the thing. It's got some kind of long convoluted name. And then again, like our lot, it just keeps changing. But effectively, it's the equivalent of our spy agency, the equivalent of the secret intelligence service. So it's the Russians gathering intelligence and not only gathering intelligence, but what Kendrick was doing even before he arrived in Vienna at the end of the, of the First World War, the Soviets were sending their agents into, sometimes in uniform, into the armies of Europe that were disbanding at the end of the war after the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. And they're trying to disrupt democracy in Western society with not just with propaganda, but trying to get the troops to mutiny, overthrow 
democracy so that you know you could spread communism and this is really dangerous subversion and that's what he was actually monitoring at that point and that's what he's monitoring from vienna in the 1920s so we mustn't underestimate the threat which i guess some of the listeners today might be thinking well gosh aren't the parallels with what we're going through and probably well yes you, you probably can draw a line in a parallel here to the 1920s and 30s the techniques are maybe have a slightly different guise but you know it's the same kind of trying to destabilize western society yeah i suppose um the modern day equivalent all the cyber warfare and and social media disinformation to undermine democracies yeah it's it, it is uncanny actually um so so whilst he's in vienna uh, mapping out these 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 communist networks there is a another uh, britain um out there in in vienna um who's i think just left cambridge university yes and he goes to vienna um well i was never entirely sure why, why he and we're talking about um the famous by harold um kim philby and he goes to vienna it's a sort of gap year type approach isn't is, is it just after university well um, the story that's given is that he's going out there to gem up on his german now he's he's visited nazi germany and didn't like this is the, the his line didn't like the kind of brutality and the horror on the streets of Berlin. Of course, Vienna is not occupied when Kim Philby goes to Vienna in 1933. He's there in 33 to 34. Some dramatizations just sort of place him there for a few months in 34. But it's really significant because his friend, his MI6 colleague and close friend, Nicholas Elliott, says in his writings that Philby already spoke fluent German. And what I discovered during my research was that a number of university students, mainly from Cambridge, but some from Oxford, would go to Vienna for a year in, in well, you say languages, if they're already fluent, but I think they were maybe getting some kind of training, I'm not sure, but loosely working for Kendrick. They were certainly invited to Kendrick's apartment for cocktail parties. They were invited as part of that. So he's building up connections. And there are other characters that uh, your listeners can read in the book who are, again, passing through Vienna University, who absolutely are known to have a career in intelligence. And it's while Philby is in Vienna in 33, he's got this, you know, this physical fights on the streets of Vienna. He's supporting the communists. Communists have been driven in, well, underground, literally. They're living in the sewers of Vienna and he's there smuggling messages, papers in and out between Vienna and Czechoslovakia. And he's working with one of Kendrick's agents, Eric Geddy. And Eric Geddy was a very prominent and well-known, respected journalist. Um, whether, well, he was also helping the communists, but whether... Geddy was tracking Philby for Kendrick is, is uncertain. It's possible. It's actually possible. And I do raise in my book, or certainly in my research, one of those questions I asked myself, my gosh, Philby's here for, for a whole year in Vienna. Did Kendrick really miss him? Because Kendrick is mapping the Soviet network. 
So if Philby really was loosely working for the Soviets, I mean, he's not actually taken up by the Soviets formally until 1934, and he's back in Britain. I just think there are too many unanswered questions. I do think that Philby might have been loosely working for us before everything went pear shape, before he's recruited by, by the Russians. It, and then I do have a documentary trail now, paper trail, to show that it was, Kendrick was certainly tracking some of Philby's close circle in Vienna. Sorry. I was going to say, he must have known he was there, Philby. Oh, he wouldn't have. I, Kendrick wouldn't have missed him. Absolutely mm. would not have missed him. And because no, and Philby wasn't suspected um, within MI6 for uh, until Burgess defects in 51. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's a long time. It's a long time when he's able to, again, kind of hide. I'm sure the last thing hasn't been said on those figures. And, and it would be nice to kind of work a bit more on them, but only if it's if it's appropriate to do so. would love to do a little bit more research and digging around. But um, are the archives closed for those uh, 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 um, MI6 archives closed for this sort of murky period in the 30s with with people like Philby? Well, all of the MI6 archives are closed. So oh, really? Have, yeah, yeah. They don't have access to any of them. Now, even even free. going back to a period where one would assume it's not really going to affect national security in 2022. Well, I suppose who are you and I to say whether or not it would affect national security? I don't know. Um, that's yeah, that's always the thing. You think, isn't it? Surely, isn't it safe to do so now? And I'll give you one example, which I think perhaps demonstrates how a bit clearer. So in the First World War, you have these networks behind enemy lines that are working with the likes of Kendrick. They're operating from their central base in France, behind enemy lines in Belgium. And at the end of the First World War, there's this huge move to have the Belgian agents recognised. And eventually, so much pressure is put on that in 1919, the London Gazette, formally, they are given awards. Over 3,000 names are printed and the awards that they're given. Great. They're recognised. 21 years later, the Germans are back occupying and they are they are hunting down some of those families. And we understand that some of them um, did lose their lives. They certainly went after Madame Richard, who was working for British intelligence out of Luxembourg. Um, she lived there with her husband, but she'd already she died just a few months ago. But the Germans came knocking on the door looking for her and they would have taken her. And so my understanding is that as a result of that, British intelligence has always said we will never compromise or release the names and details of how our operations are carried out. But occasionally, ever so occasionally, you see MI6 has written to MI5 about somebody and it's signed quite often with a, a lovely green C for head of MI6. That's really quite an exciting moment for historians. Oh my gosh, turn the page and you see something from MI6, these archives that never opened. But sometimes there's a copy of correspondence in the MI5 files that have been released. And again, MI5 does not release everything, but they do release some things. But I think the most secret one of all, it is, isn't it? It's MI6. It's that kind of shadowy, 
world and, and perhaps that very layer of secrecy does give rise number one to a public fascination with it but also a sense of mystery and conspiracy it can be open for all sorts of conspiracy theories and you can't disprove things one way or another well and yeah people are just fascinated aren't they by it absolutely particularly i mean so the chapters um on the chapter dealing with with you know whether uh, with kendrick and philby i just you know because i can't get enough of the whole philby stuff i find it just so fascinating yeah. and the fact that um yeah that, that question you ask in over whether kendrick did he miss philby or not or was philby working for the british as well as oh it's just uh so many questions anyway we could probably talk about uh, that for a lot longer. Um, but what 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 one thing you've mentioned already um, is the sewers of Vienna and mm. the fact that uh, communist um, uh, spies were, were living in them. Uh, now, Vienna, the Vienna I, I, I had in my mind whilst reading this was uh, the Vienna of the Third Man which is the brilliant movie made just after the war, I think. Yes. Um, and written by a Graham Greene short story, who also was in Vienna working for the British, another name in this small world. Uh, and I think the um, producer, is it Alexander Corder? Oh, yes. He, he was there working with Kendrick in the 20s and 30s. It's just mind-boggling, and the, yeah. and then the Harry Lyme character played by Orson Welles is is supposedly um, based on Kim Philby. Yeah, I mean that that's always what's that's the line, isn't it? But yeah, it it's kind of mirrors. It's mirrors and mirrors and shadows. Nobody quite knows really what reality is, but that's. That's a world, I mean, Graham Greene, like John le Carre, you know, hasn't created this world of their imagination. It's a world that they inhabited. John le Carre, of course, being the late David Cornwall, you know, they've had, they make, I think they make such good spy writers because they've inhabited that world. And so I suppose I grew up, I've been really loving this kind of stuff and also loving the James Bond films and and just thinking it's a wonderful product of their imagination. And then as a historian, you start diving into some of the files. I mean, I worked on some of the MI9 files with the Q gadgets, those kind of escape and evasion gadgets. And you suddenly find, well, Ian Fleming hasn't invented this. It's, <laughs> it's in these secret files. And I think that only adds to the mystery doesn't it because you're not never quite sure and again with the third man what's reality i mean it could all be true couldn't it but we'll never know because it's cast as fiction absolutely i i was i went to vienna for my 10 10 year wedding anniversary and i went to the there's a have you there's a museum in vienna which i will put a link in in case anyone is going there for the third man museum oh is there it's unbelievably good I was there with my wife on a romantic excursion and I dragged her in the hotel and, uh, into the museum and four hours later we emerged with a very angry wife I was with a very angry <laughs> wife but uh yeah it's it's uh, it is extraordinary I just thought I'd um, I'd get that in there um so yes yeah, so this 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 1938 comes and the Anschluss with uh, the Germans with Hitler um Mm. Uh, well Anschluss was the sort of uh, latching Austria into the Third Reich and it becoming one one country 
And this is the sort of trigger for Kendrick to then embark on a, a hugely important phase in his career and his life. Mm. And the lives of his and the lives of so many as well. Yeah, because that's the moment at which he makes a conscious decision to actually roll his sleeves up, if you like, and actually get involved in this rescue effort to issue visas and passports to the Jewish community. There are literally on the first morning after Austria's annex, the Anschluss, as you said, there were, according to foreign office files, 700 to 800 Jews queuing all the way around the embassy and down the, the street around the corner. And that was the beginning of months and months of utter chaos, you know, utter chaos, just trying to get people out. And it became really difficult because within a month, the British government tightened the restrictions and started to say, well, you cannot no, you can no longer issue one month. Well, they were like holiday visas loosely called holiday visas but they were one month temporary visas these were completely banned and it really severely restricted how Kendrick could get Jews out and some communists actually because they were at risk the very people he had been following through his agents some of them now had to be exfiltrated from from Austria and some of his own agents that were at risk some of whom were Jewish some were not so you've got this whole mix of people whose lives are in imminent danger and he starts to fake passports fake visas papers at least one occasion he fakes a marriage certificate to get someone out he starts to take jews over the border just one or two at a time in a car uh, in a diplomatic car and there's a sign in the back saying corps diplomatique so the diplomatic corps uh, car is not supposed to be stopped at the border you can't do it very often, but any way to get Jews out. And he goes on to save 200 Jews a day. And that's the official. The record is, is somewhere between 175 to 200 a day, according to the Foreign Office file. So this is not a figure I've tried to guess or make up. It's an astonishing legacy. And, and Oliver, the thing is, for me, it's he didn't have to do it. He could have left it to his other staff. And if we think about what else is happening at this time, uh, certainly April, May, May, June, July, Czechoslovakia is really at risk. I mean, it's hotting up for Czechoslovakia. And he, he's got his agents coming in and out against this backdrop. And it's really believed that Hitler's gonna take Czechoslovakia. We now know that's you know not quite a year away, but it doesn't happen until the 15th of March in 39. But they were very dangerous times. And so Kendrick's trying to juggle this. And the Foreign Office files tell us that he spent up to 15 hours a day, sometimes more. And they were all utterly exhausted. And it just gives us an idea that whole cultural world has just collapsed around them. The world that he loved, the Vienna that he loved, he'd been there 13 years. It's just decimated overnight with this brutality. And one of the key figures, I mean, there's a lot of nameless people, we don't know who he got out, but he did help Sigmund Freud and his family to leave Vienna. And it still took nearly two months to get Freud out, partly because Sigmund Freud <laughs> didn't think he was at risk to start with, and didn't want to leave. 
but then even he realized at the point at which his son and daughter were arrested one was under house arrest one was carted off for questioning you know even then when he said okay I've got to get out for the sake of my family and bring them with me it still took until the 2nd of June to get him out of Austria and he goes and, and then later in the war he loses four of his sisters in the Holocaust and again I, I bring that in because not many people know the sisters didn't want to leave and so they were left behind they were in their 80s but they died in the camps I mean horror, horrifying situation it is it is awful I I I, I think one thing you mentioned of the reality if you think about the actual reality of, of getting out of of uh, Vienna or or any any part of uh, Nazi Germany and the because you mentioned in the book um the great actor Roger Lloyd Pack who's um yes. whose father was one of the Jews who managed to get out is that correct oh, his mother his mother, his mother his sorry yes and his and, grandparents and the but the guilt that they felt and the the, yes. uh, the uh, and the, the there was a sort of a, 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 a all this is sort of mixed in into this just horrific story isn't it yeah it's trying of, to get out whoever they could first so Roger Lloyd Pack you're right he played trigger in only fools and horses and when i interviewed him because somebody close to me said oh you know you want to interview Roger because his family come from vienna and about Kendrick and all of that and when I when I visited him he said we came out with this suitcase this tiny suitcase and he just opened it it was absolutely packed with photographs of pre-war Vienna and I realized they'd left everything behind but they had chosen to bring the photographs and he said to me that he knew very little and he said to me his grandfather was the most at risk he was a skin specialist he was forbidden to practice after the Anschluss and he was a close friend of Sigmund Freud got him out um, the grandmother and the, the children were still left behind but eventually Kendrick got them out and Roger's uncle goes on to become a secret listener for Kendrick in the Second World War so it kind of goes around in circles but there are so many families that are just discovering they owe their lives to Kendrick, in fact, a number of them who were taken to East Africa, just to, you know, any way to get them out. And Kendrick would say, you know, just, just get out of the country and it'll be so hard to send you back. And one of the events that you know, sticks in my mind is when he sent a thousand youngsters, they were teenagers, to what was then Palestine for a sporting event and of course he knew they weren't coming back and they didn't so that's how he just absolutely any way you could get people out and rescue and of course at one point he does get a, a slap wrist from the foreign office because he's found a route out through Yugoslavia and he's his job is on the line and saying look you know any more of this you've got to close off this route but still he carried on, he closed the Yugoslavian route, but still he used other means, just completely under the radar to get people out. So he's a man with a deep moral compass, actually. But also, as I often say, a man who would have killed to protect the secrets of his country. And that's a very, very interesting character for our spy master. Now, has he... 
given that he he's managed to save so many um jews from from almost certain death is his mm. the, the I don't think he's been included in Yad Vashem, the the memorial, Israel's memorial to, uh, uh, because uh, no. others like Frank Foley have. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. It took a long time for historian or one of my close friends, Michael Smith, to get Frank Foley recognised, and it finally happened in the late 1990s, because I think the the attitude or the feeling was that like the Foley and Kendrick were only doing their job, but actually. It's not a matter of that. Frank Foley has been recognised. I have put in an application for Kendrick to be recognised at Yad Vashem. And it's it's been slow. And I think they're not totally convinced yet. But, you know, how many testimonies does it need? We've lost the eyewitnesses to that period. I have submitted one veteran's eyewitness account of how he was rescued by Kendrick. He passed away just a few months ago. So he's at the age of 101. And I interviewed the late Lord George Weidenfeld, who went on to found the publishing company. And he said to me, I would not have got out without Kendrick because I didn't qualify. My papers weren't correct. I, I wasn't in one of the categories that was allowed to come out. And Kendrick stamped my papers. And he said, I would not be alive if it wasn't for him. And then again, I like to tell people this because it's the unexpected element of when you're doing an, an interview. George looked at me and said, what happened to the man who saved my life? And I thought, oh, my gosh, for the last 70 years, you know, he's become a successful publishing house and a, a wonderful philanthropist. And he had no idea what had happened to Kendrick. So we chatted about that. And that was really a very special moment. It is an amazing. He was an amazing man, um, yeah. and, and it's a wonderful tribute to him. Your book. It, now he he is arrested actually for basically the 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 Nazis are, are fed up with him, um, and he's evicted from from uh, Vienna. He's he actually thrown in a prison cell for a night or two, isn't he? And then and then yes. and then he flies out. So. The Gestapo and uh, well, the, the German Secret Service, the Abwehr, I mean, they, they've got a price on his head. They know that this top SIS man, British intelligence has got their top man in Vienna, but they can't find him. And they dub him the elusive Englishman. And Kendrick feeds some disinformation back through his eight, you know, through his contacts to say, well, you know, this Englishman, he comes to Vienna about every three to four weeks. That's how you've got to catch him when he comes in on the plane. So they're looking in the wrong place. He's actually living amongst them. And it takes terrifyingly a double agent to betray him. And there are two dramatic chapters, as you know, in the book about how he's snared by the Abwehr. And yeah, he's captured just as he's trying to escape over the border. And this is August 1938. And he does get hoisted back to Vienna and suffers what's described as four days of Soviet style interrogation. This is a man who's now 57. So he's, he's worked in British intelligence for nearly 30 years. He's one of the most experienced. He's the top man in, in Europe. And yeah, he's he's about to have a pretty rough ride. And then I think it's because Munich is on the cards the following month. It's all kind of building towards the Munich agreement when Hitler and 
our Prime Minister Chamberlain meet in September. If it wasn't for that, I don't think Kendrick would have got out alive. And, you know, he's he was very, very lucky and he's done what happens to him is what's very popular even today. He is expelled from the country for spying on charges of spying, which, of course, he denies. I, I, that's what I found amazing, actually, the fact that the uh, conference in Munich probably saved his life. Uh, but it, but then I thought that with two countries, you know, Germany and, and Britain and uh, uh, and, uh, and a British agent arrested, do you think there really was a prospect they'd shoot him? Oh, yeah. Why not? Absolutely. I think these were very, very dicey times. Yeah. I mean, there is something which said the Abwehr were less were less brutal than the Gestapo. So, I mean, who can say in hindsight, but it caused enough, you can just see in the files, enough concern in Whitehall if your top man's taken and he's interrogated. And why is it so serious? Because immediately the whole of the SIS network, including the likes of Foley working undercover, they're all recalled to um, the UK. And so you need eyes on the ground. This is a pivotal point. And we know war is coming. It's just a matter of when. You know, you could just feel they, they knew you can read in the intelligence files that have been released by various other branches of intelligence that war is coming. In 38, they know it's coming. They're just trying to delay it so that we can prepare ourselves. So this is a very dangerous time. You need intelligence and, and you've just recalled the whole of your network. How are you going to get intelligence on Nazi Germany now? That's that's the big thing. Now, they gradually go back. Once Kendrick's back and he's been debriefed and there's a bit of more relaxation about what the Germans knew a fair amount, but not through Kendrick. But then there's the second catastrophe, and I mentioned it earlier, the Venlo incident. And that's when those two SIS guys are taken. They spend the rest of the war in a concentration camp. This is November 39. The whole of the network is recalled again, the whole SIS network. And I came across a declassified file which said that until the end of 1942, we struggled to get intelligence on Nazi Germany. And there were two main sources that saved the day. The first, of course, was Bletchley Park, and the second was Kendrick's wartime bugging operation. Extraordinary. So Kendrick goes on to save the day. Yeah, that's the second part of the book, and it's it's yeah. it is it it is amazing. Um, I I don't want to go through that in too much detail because our listeners need to to get the book. But there's one particular incident that i found just i was so glued reading reading it is is rudolf hess oh and yeah. his um i mean it's such strange it's such a bizarre incident during the war where when the hitler's deputy albeit i think they'd undergone a bit of a change in their relationship hadn't they hitler and rudolf hess <laughs> um but so bizarre that he flies over um from germany to scotland and and then yeah. doesn't is there a second um is there a second person in the plane with rudolf hess 
Oh, do you know, never be surprised by what you're going to find in your research. And I started out on this biography over 20 years ago. That's why it's taken so long, because of this whole secret world that he worked in, not really knowing what I was going to discover. And then, you know, historians have a habit of kind of working through each other's stuff and not really kind of necessarily always going back to the original files. And to be honest, I didn't have time to read all the books on Rudolf Hess. And there are loads of them, whole shelves of them. So I went back to the original files, foreign office files that have been declassified. And there is this report by Felkin, Dennis Felkin. He was head of air intelligence at Kendrick's bugging site. And he says, you know, there's no trace of the second person. And I'm thinking, what? I'd always thought that Hess had flown solo. So did he fly solo? And I think there are a whole raft of myths about Hess. I'm not sure if it changes the story at the end of the day. But Michael Smith, the historian we mentioned earlier, conclusively believes, um, and I believe, I think this is the, the accepted uh, argument now by historians, that Rudolf Hess was lured to the UK and okay bails out over Scotland but he was lured by MI6 but what for nobody knows <laughs> um, and he comes with his peace plans and does he does he give up any intelligence well historically everybody says no he didn't give up anything but I looked at the again the bugged conversations because they bugged Hess's conversations with his guards with Kendrick Kendrick was one of his minders wasn't he uh, for a short time at, the, at this secret site near Aldershot. And I looked at the intelligence he was giving up, and then I compared it with some of the transcripts from the bugged conversations of other prisoners of war. And Hess was spot on, which just we didn't believe it. We thought he was exaggerating. And I give one example, U-boat production. We needed to know if we're knocking out some of the German U-boats, how quickly can they replace them? And at one point, Hess is saying, well, you know, we're now manufacturing one a week and we're doing it inland. And we didn't believe him. And now we know from bug conversations of prisoners, he was right. The Germans had moved their production inland and they were rolling out one U-boat a week minimum. And so I think this is a fascinating. You know, how mad was Rudolf Hess? Pretty mad at times. But he's a real enigma, isn't he? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's very, very murky, that whole story. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, do we do we really want to know what happened? Cause at the no, end yeah, day, the, mystery, the mystery is makes it all, doesn't it? Yes. It's well, it like does, with Philby I mean, in, in the 30s. Yes. I suppose if someone was to say, well, Helen, we're going to give you a file and here it is. We're going to you can be very privileged. You can write about Hess. Here's the file. Here's what happened. It kind of takes away some of that magic. I know that's not, but no one's going to do that. But in a way, perhaps, perhaps we do need to keep that little bit of mystery. And of course, potentially there might be national secrets that are being hidden. But I mean, I, I can't think what, but there must be a reason why some of his files are still being withheld. And, and I think we have to learn to respect that now. That's something I've learned on the journey, particularly through writing this book, that we can't have access to everything. And that is OK. Well, well it has look, to be, doesn't it? <laughs> I, 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 exactly. We don't have a choice, I suppose. Um, but what we're coming to the end. But just before we 
do go there's a photograph in in the, in the book two photographs in fact of um of a drinks party on the terrace of was it trent park uh, Latimer House. Latimer House. Latimer In Buckinghamshire, House. yes. Yes, there's a drinks party with some uh, intelligence officers, naval yes. intelligence officers, and there is an individual in this photograph alongside one other very, there's a very famous individual, Ian Fleming, there. Yes. But uh, another famous, infamous individual who may or may not, and it sounds like you're pretty convinced it's George Blake. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question that's George Blake. That's extraordinary. Yeah, it, really I have is. Asked, it has caused a lot of sensitivity. I'm not quite sure why, because in the wartime, it's known he was working for us and he was in naval intelligence. And if you look back at his memoirs, there is that kind of hazy gap where he's receiving all this training, particularly in interrogation. And then he, he allegedly doesn't go on to do this kind of work. But this is, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Sorry, you can cut that bit out. Yeah, no um, props, no props. So this is a sort of hazy period when he's having all this training in interrogation and he is an expert on midget U-boats. He's the naval intelligence key expert. And I've asked people since, as people have been to my talk since the book has come out and have said, my gosh, yes, absolutely, that is George Blake. But I don't know why it's sensitive, because things go wrong for him way into the cold war in the korean war so i'm not sure what but i didn't you know didn't look to find him in there it's just that i've got this photograph and my gosh he sat in it i can't change that um again it's a an idea again it's an example of not knowing what you're going to find finding the unexpected and, and I suppose one wouldn't want people to be nervous about this in the background, <laughs> I suppose. But does it change anything, really? But he was close to Kendrick in his career, was George Blake. And George Blake does, at the end of the war, get dispatched from a naval party near Trent Park to go on the snatch, snatch and grab for the Ian Fleming lot in post-war Germany just at the end of the war. Now that's all official and that's all above board and no one's complaining about that. But for some reason, locating him in Latimer House in 1943 is a bit sensitive. How strange. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Very mysterious world. I, I, know, I know, this is just adding to the mystique. It's wonderful. Look, so this has been a fantastic chat i really enjoyed it the, the book is out in paperback when this goes out um so i encourage everyone to it's just it's just the such a seductive world of murkiness of espionage and and then more importantly a wonderful story of a lot of people a lot of jews being saved from um from near certain death by a wonderful man thomas kendrick thank uh, you very much for having me <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that. If you could give me a review or subscribe, I'd be forever in your debt. Until next week, thank you and good night.